You're listening to Brains On, where we're serious about being curious. Brains On is supported in part by a grant from the National Science Foundation. I don't know about you, Nantine, but this science of cooking business has me feeling super snacky. Yeah, let's swing by the library kitchen for a bite. Kick, twirl, hip, sway, spin! Gunkador? Other people! Gongador turns down music! Thanks, that was loud. Loudest in land! So, um, what exactly were you doing there, Gongador? Impromptu kitchen dance party? Gongador, combining love of food with love of dancing, invented new method of mixing. Huh, how does it work? Gongador places salad and dressing in mighty mixing bowl, then covers bowl. With foil of tin! You mean tin foil? Yes! Foil of tin! Then, Gongador takes covered bowl and dances hard out! Shake! Rattle! Roll! Hoo-ha! Now, super mega ultra jumping spin twirl! That was like a 1,440-degree turn. Yes, Gongador feel dizzy and nauseous. Sitting down now, ugh, suddenly not hungry. I guess this new mixing method has its drawbacks. Yes, needs work. Here, have salad. Um, thanks. We were kind of hungry, and you did give it a real gourmet shake. Yeah, we'll eat it on the way to the studio. Thanks, Gungador. Bye. Bye, guys. Next time, less spinning, more sashaying. Chill, chop, mix, cheat. Reverse the order, then repeat. Eat, mix, chop, chill. The recipe for every meal. listening to Brains On from American Public Media. I'm Molly Bloom, and my co-host for this delicious deep dive is Nantine Ba from New York City. Welcome back, Nantine. Hi. Nantine comes to us from Harlem Grown, where she's learning a lot about growing and cooking food. So, Nantine, what is your absolute favorite ingredient to work with? Cheese. Oh. So why is cheese your favorite ingredient to work with? I think it's probably because I get to eat it while making what I'm making. You get to take some snacks along the way. Mm-hmm. Well, Nantine clearly knows her food, but she is not the only chef in the house. We've partnered with America's Test Kitchen to answer your many, many cooking questions. America's Test Kitchen is part lab, part kitchen, all delicious. They know their stuff. So far in this series, we've covered three important components of cooking, heating, chilling, and chopping. Today, we mix it up. Mixing. You know, stirring, whisking, folding, incorporating, blending, combining, fusing, kneading, emulsifying. With so many ways to say it, you know it must be important. So let's start this mixing episode with a question about two things that just don't want to. Hi, my name is Mike Trigos, and I am from Portland, Oregon. My question is, why don't oil and vinegar mix? Have you noticed that too, Nantine? Like, what happens when you pour oil and vinegar together? 
I noticed like the oil sits on top of the vinegar and they just don't mix. Right. They totally separate. You know, maybe the vinegar will form a blob in the oil if it's in a shallow bowl or if it's in a bottle, like you said, that layer of oil just sits on top of the vinegar. Same thing happens with oil and water. And that's because there's a lot of water in the vinegar. Water and oil do not get along. We asked Christian Sargianis, managing editor of America's Test Kitchen Kids, to explain why this happens. So oil and water are kind of like cats and dogs, or they're kind of like brothers and sisters in the backseat of a car on a really long road trip. Stop looking at me, oil. I'm not looking at you, water. I'm looking out the window. Dad, make oil stop. They typically don't like to get close together, and that is because water is a polar molecule. So it has a positive charge and a negative charge, kind of like a magnet. And so the opposite charges, the positive and the negative, they attract. So water stays really tightly together. I'm my own best friend. I don't even know why you came along on this trip, oil. Uh, because we're siblings? Oil, on the other hand, is non-polar, so it doesn't have any positive or negative charges, so there's no way for the water to stick to the oil, so they stay on opposite sides of the room or the car. Whatever. You do you, water. Ugh, that's such a you thing to say. Dad, I can't take it. Stop the car and kick oil out. No, you get out. I'm fine right here. Come on, just stop it already. So oil and water don't play nice. But wait, there are plenty of foods where oil or other fats are mixed with water. Yeah, like milk, salad dressing, mayonnaise, cheese, ice cream, even hot dogs. These are all what we call lunch. I mean, sorry. Uh, These are what we call emulsions. And that means oil and water are mixed up so well that they look like just one substance instead of two separate layers. There are a couple of ways you can accomplish this feat. So the first is you can mix them really, really, really well. Like get a super, super good arm workout well. And what happens is you break the water up into really teeny, teeny, tiny droplets and they're suspended within the oil. So that's way you can make an emulsion number one. And the second way is that you can get help from a different kind of molecule that's called an emulsifier. Emulsifiers. These are the unspoken heroes of so, so many recipes. And so what emulsifiers do is they bridge the gap between water and oil. So they have one end that is compatible with water, and the other end is compatible with oil. And so they can hang on to both of those molecules. And then you have one cohesive substance. One emulsifier that works super well is egg yolk. Or you can use mayonnaise, which has egg yolks in it. Or honey. These substances can bridge the differences between water and oil. Okay, so let's extend this backseat of the car idea. Remember, here's water, negative and positive, sticks to itself. It's so hot back here. Ugh. Oh, but the look out the window, it's so pretty. I love it. And oil, which as we mentioned, is neutral. Well, we are still in a car. Hey, want to play a game to pass the time, water? No. Don't talk to me. Just leave already. No, I don't think so. But if you're so upset, you can leave. No, you leave. No, you. Now watch what happens when we throw an emulsifier in that middle seat. Like honey. Everybody loves honey. Hey, guys. Sure is quiet in here. Hey, water. What? 
You know what's super fun to do on a road trip? Having deep thoughts that no one else understands. Staring intensely at a thing. Brooding. Oh my goodness, that sounds amazing. We can brood together. You get me. And Oil, I'm an excellent multitasker. I will totally play that game with you. Really? Awesome. How about a thumb war? Oh, you do not want to get in a thumb war with Honey. I do not have thumbs, but I am really sticky. There are no winners there. How about I spy instead? I will go first. I spy something... Now, Oil and Water may not be talking to each other, but at least they're not both trying to kick the other out of the car. It's a peaceful kind of truce brokered by our good pal, Honey. And remember, even ingredients should always wear a seatbelt. Brains on. Fun fact, emulsions aren't just food. They happen whenever two substances that normally wouldn't get along are forced to hang out. Moisturizing lotion is an emulsion, and so is car wax, and so is asphalt. And here's something else fun. It's the mystery sound. Mystery Here it is. Any guesses, Nantine? Like the beginning, it sounded like when you're trying to turn on a stove, but then like the liquid dropping sound kind of threw me off. Hmm. You want to hear it one more time? Mm-hmm. Here it is. Any new thoughts? No, I'm so confused. Yeah, this is a tough one. I like your thought, though, about how that sounds like a stove, trying to, like a gas stove trying to be lit. Well, we're going to be back with the answer in just a bit. But first, Nantine, help me out. For people who don't know, what is a whisk and what does it look like? A whisk, it's a mixing tool. It's mostly used for things like egg yolks or like when you're making things like brownies or cake, stuff like that. Uh, I would describe a whisk as like a large string just twisted and turned into like almost a circular shape, but more like an oval. Exactly. Yeah. So like it's kind of like loops of metal or sometimes like silicone that are sort of overlapping on a metal rod. So in the times you have whisks like eggs or something, what motion do you use with your hand? It's like a, it's kind of like you move it side to side so like you can really get like the corners and crevices, but it's also like circular. So it's kind of like all over the place. Sometimes I end up spilling things out of the bowl. So, <laughs> so I don't really use, like sometimes I end up using a fork when I'm whisking my egg yolk because it just gets everywhere. I use a fork too for my whisking. Well, there are a lot of ways to whisk, but which is the best way to whisk. Our friends at America's Test Kitchen have been doing some serious testing, naturally, it's in their name, to find out the best method for whisking. Now, we didn't really understand how intense whisking could get. To give you a taste, this is what it sounds like when a brother and sister are in a competitive whisking race. (laughs) John's getting it. John's doing it. (laughs) Well, that looks good. Both look good. Can we talk cold after? Yeah, it's noisy. But... It's for science. Lisa McManus, the gear guru of ATK, invited us and brother and sister duo John and Sayla Kim, who you just heard whisking, into the kitchen. They're going to show us the scientifically proven top whisking technique. You can either go in a circle like this, we found, 
That's usually what I do. Some people go side to side like you were doing. And some people whip it in sort of a vertical loop, up and down and around, like uh, like a Ferris wheel, like mm. goes up and down. That's usually what I do. Yeah, well, we've decided to figure out which way works best. So in order to test whisking technique, Lisa and her team set out to see how quickly they could turn heavy cream into nice, fluffy whipped cream with different whisking styles. Going in a circle barely works at all. And when we tested this, the side-to-side method worked much faster. It whipped the cream in four minutes. And the circular motion, just like stirring a pot, it took 10 minutes, more than twice as long. So, and just for the record, beating in a vertical loop, I took eight minutes and then we gave up. And that's still twice as long as the side-to-side method. So we looked at what happened. Well, first of all, as you can tell, it's a little bit easier to just go side to side. You can do it really fast, really aggressively, like you can really get going, right? So you can carry out more and harder motions per minute than with the other methods. And that creates more of what we call sheer force on the liquid. And that's shears like scissors, like cutting through. And because stirring and beating in like a vertical loop only moves the, the liquid in one direction, they don't make as much sheer force. And the force matters because it basically creates air channels that trap air inside and gives it more volume so it starts to fluff up so you get whipped cream faster. So now you know an easier and faster and more effective way to whisk side to side. We have a video on our website of this ideal whisking technique if you want to see what it looks like for yourself. So you can make sure your whipped cream is ready to eat as soon as humanly possible. Do you have a question you'd like to hear answered on the show? A mystery sound to share? Maybe a drawing of the brands on Labra Kitchen? Yeah. Let's see Gungador and his cutting-edge new mixing technique. You can send all of these things to us by visiting brainson.org slash contact. That's what Zoe and Allie did. We recently heard that bananas are radioactive. Is this true? We'll be back with the answer to that during our moment of um at the end of the show. And we'll be the latest group of listeners to be added to the Brains Honor Roll. Keep listening. So we just learned the best way to whisk, but there are machines that can do this kind of work for us. There's the electric mixer. Both the stand and handheld varieties. And there's the blender. And it turns out blenders were invented for a very specific and delicious purpose. Well, Blender is one of the great inventions of the 20th century, partly because it was invented in the pursuit of milkshakes. That's Tucker Shaw, an editor from America's Test Kitchen. Let's go back to the 1920s. And this was at a time when electricity and refrigeration were still sort of starting to come around. It existed, but not everybody had access to it. But milkshakes were like the hot thing at that time because it really was the first time that you could transport, you know, frozen dairy products and so forth uh, and have them at a, a lunch counter or a soda fountain or something like that. So rather than making milkshakes the old way, which involved putting ingredients into a jar and literally shaking it until it turned frothy and cold and delicious. Can somebody else take this? My arm's tired. Uh, A man named Stephen Poplowski from Wisconsin wanted to find a better way to make more milkshakes faster. 
a heroic cause if I ever heard one. Yes, I agree. That is why I, Stephen Poplowski, dedicated my life to the noble cause of the milkshake. This jar-shaking shenanigans must end. It is time for the milk to be shaken by technology. And he created a very small machine that could spin very, very quickly. And he figured that if he could attach blades to that spinning little machine and in, sort of encase all of that in with a pitcher or a cup or something like that, then he could conceivably put ingredients in there and have that thing spin around like crazy and blend everything together. And I quoteth, for the first mixer of my design having an agitating element mounted in a base and adapted to be drivingly connected with the agitator in a cup when the cup was placed in a recess in the top of the base. <clears throat> That's patent language for... I just invented a blender, people! Wah, wah, wah! U.S. patent number 1480914, y'all! Milkshakes for life! Still, at this point, blenders were only found in soda shops or restaurants. They were too expensive for people to have in their homes. That's where I come in, Fred Waring. You've probably heard of me. I'm kind of a big deal. Fred was a famous big band leader. You know, Fred Waring and the Pennsylvanians. You probably know our hit songs like, I wonder how I look when I'm asleep, and I've never seen a straight banana. Straight classics, right? And yes, those are actual song titles of songs they played. Alas, Fred and his music have largely been forgotten, but it's his non-music work that proved to have staying power. Fred was also a former engineering student and a tinkerer who would eventually bring blenders into the home. He took a rough prototype for a cheaper blender that just wasn't working. He tinkered with it, he made adjustments, until finally he unveiled the Waring Blender in 1937. Man, this guy sure knows how to brand. Now, even though they were affordable, the public was still a little iffy about this whole home blender thing. One article called it an electric motor with an odd-shaped jar. But Waring being Waring, he was good at publicizing it. Helps to be Fred Waring, world-famous touring musician. So, Fred Waring took the Waring blender on tour. We have one trunk for the blender and one trunk for the food. Oh yeah, and instruments too. First we'll swing, then we'll blend. Fred Waring and the Pennsylvanians promoted the blender far and wide, and it soon started to catch on. In fact, Fred developed a stainless steel version for scientists that was used by Dr. Jonas Salk in the development of the polio vaccine. That's how I invented the Waring polio vaccine. Good try, Fred, but no. Oh, yes, we have not never... Now, before we shake things up any further, it's time to go back to that mystery sound. Here it is again. Any new guesses, Nantine? Uh, hmm, it's kind of hard. I want to say, like, an uh, odd faucet. I like that guess. You ready for the answer? Yes. Here it is. So I'm Molly Birnbaum, and I'm the editor-in-chief of America's Test Kitchen Kids. That was the sound of ketchup coming out of a glass bottle. So I was banging that glass bottle with the palm of my hand in order to get the ketchup 
out of it. It's not an easy task to get ketchup out of a glass bottle. Mm. Have you ever gotten ketchup out of a glass bottle before? Nah. Yeah, it's tricky. It just kind of sticks in there. And that is because ketchup is a non-Newtonian fluid. A non-Newtonian fluid is something that is neither a liquid nor a solid, just like slime. If you want to learn more about these very cool substances, you can listen to our episode called The Science of Slime. So, Nantine, do you like ketchup? Yes. What do you put ketchup on? My french fries. And I don't know if they have it in, like, other states or if it's just, like, a New York City, like, Harlem, Bronx type of thing. But... There's this thing called a chopped cheese, where it's like a chop of the beef, blah, blah, blah. They melt the cheese on it. When I get it, I'll just ask for that, cheese, and ketchup, and then it sounds odd, but it's, it's actually good. That sounds good. Now, there are some people who put ketchup on, like, everything. It's their favorite food. And Molly Birnbaum is one of these people who loves ketchup. Personally, I think it is one of the world's most perfect foods. It's incredibly delicious because it has all five of the human taste sensations as part of it. It has salty, sweet, bitter, sour, and umami. And these are all the tastes that you get on your tongue from the taste buds in your mouth, which is different than flavor because flavor has a lot to do with smell. But ketchup is perfect because it has all five taste sensations. So we've talked about emulsifying and blending But we haven't even touched on baking yet. For a deep dive on the science of baking, check out our episode conveniently titled The Science of Baking. It's a classic. I mean, it's not as big as I've never seen a straight banana, but few things are. But wait, we can't finish this episode without talking about why mixing is so important for baked goods. No, no, we cannot. So here to drop some baking knowledge, plus an amazing recipe for brownies, is Elle Simone from America's Test Kitchen. Mixing is a very important skill that you need in all cooking, but especially in baking, and uh, very important in our brownie recipe today. Elle told us mixing is not only important for combining ingredients like chocolate and butter, but also for getting the right brownie texture. The magic there comes from how you mix the wheat proteins known as gluten. Well, if we mix too hard, that will overactivate the gluten. Wheat flour has two proteins, glutenin and gliadin, and... These are the proteins that work together to form a network, right? So it's the, these two things like unfurling and colliding back together to create this network called gluten. And so it's great to have gluten. Everything that has flour pretty much has gluten and it's good to have it here. But what you don't need is an overmixed gluten because we want our brownies to be soft and moist and we don't need it to be airy and fluffy as like maybe a cake or bread, right? So this is just a gentle creation of a gluten network. So like you're knocking all those proteins together, and the more you knock them together, the more connections you make. So it's tougher. But if you don't make as many connections, it's silkier. Yes. Got it. Yes. All right, so the batter's ready. So with brownies and a lot of other recipes, it's not just what you mix, it's how much you mix it that matters. So I'm going to put our brownie mix into the pan. All right. Going in. And we'll have some delicious brownies in 30 minutes. You can find this very tasty brownie recipe at our website, brainson.org. And if you want more recipes like this one, the America's Test Kitchen Kids newsletter brings recipes and hands on activities straight to your inbox. 
go to americastestkitchen.com slash kids to sign up and learn more about their upcoming cookbook for young chefs. Plus, this fall, ATK is launching America's Test Kitchen Kids. It'll be chock full of fun stuff designed to excite the next generation of curious cooks and engaged eaters. Water and oil don't mix because water molecules have a charge and oil molecules don't. But with the help of a molecule called an emulsifier, the two can play nice. And whisking back and forth is way better than whisking round and round. An engineering degree can be used for the betterment of snacks and humankind. And mixing is important in developing the gluten and baked goods, like brownies. That's it for this episode of Brains On. Brains On is produced by Mark Sanchez, Sandin Totten, and Molly Bloom. And we could not have made this series on the science of cooking without our friends at America's Test Kitchen, Molly Birnbaum, Caitlin Kelleher, Sasha Marks, Lisa McManus, and Elle Simone. This week, we also had production help from Lauren D., Emily Allen, and Jacqueline Kim. And we had engineering help from Veronica Rodriguez and Sarah Bruguer. And many thanks to Tony Hillary, Julie Williams, Kadia Duba, Joe Juvland, Seth and Maxwell Juvland, Tracy Mumford, Eileen Noonan, John Miller, Kyle Sheely, Jeff Jones, Curtis Gilbert, and Cindy Kim. Now, before we go, it's time for our moment of um. Hi, I'm Zoe Ferens, and I'm 11. And I'm Allie Ferens, and I'm 9. And we live in Nordland, Washington. And we recently heard that bananas are radioactive. Is this true? So that is true. So bananas are indeed radioactive. I'm Robert Chun. I'm a radiation oncologist at UCLA. So we treat um, cancer patients with high-energy radiation beams to zap tumors out of people. Radiation is the energy given off by a lot of the atoms in our universe, especially the atoms that are unstable and need to get to a more stable state. Bananas are radioactive because bananas have a lot of potassium in them. And potassium has a rare version that it's a little bit unstable. And to get from an unstable state to a stable state, it gives off a little bit of energy. And that energy is what we measure in radiation. And if someone had a Geiger counter, which is a meter to measure radiation, and was patient enough and close enough to a bunch of bananas, um, you can actually measure a little bit of that radiation. So there are lots of things that are radioactive. For example, people are radioactive. And even being close to somebody and sleeping next to somebody, there's a little bit of radioactivity just from that. And there's a little bit more radioactivity the higher you go in the atmosphere. So for people taking airplane rides, um, you get a little bit extra radiation just by being that much closer to the sun. Bananas are still very safe to eat. The amount of extra radiation from one banana is about 1% of what you would get every day just living your life. I'm radiating love and appreciation as I get ready to read this list of names. It's the latest group to be added to the Brain's Honor Roll. These are the listeners who share their ideas, questions, mystery sounds, and drawings with us. 
Avery from Atlantic Beach, Florida, Ryut from Silver Spring, Maryland, Fiona from Bremen, Maine, Colin from St. Michael, Minnesota, Ethan and Hope from Providence, Rhode Island, Addison from Dallas, Timothy from Dillsburg, Pennsylvania, Jackson from Houston, Johnny from Johannesburg, South Africa, Bailey from Melbourne, Australia, Timothy from Pontiac, Illinois, Ramona from Oneonta, New York, Griffin from Brookings, South Dakota, Alden from Bethlehem, New Hampshire, Devin from Mar Vista, California, Lucy from Los Angeles, Maverick from Seminole, Florida, Patricio from Miami, Manal, Yusuf, and Ayub from Atlanta, Lydian from Shelburne, Massachusetts, Sebastian, Abigail, and Quinn from Florida, Taylor from Katy, Texas, Luke from Tacoma, Washington, Julian from Hardwick, New Jersey, Declan from Big Bear City, California, Landon from Occidental, California, Keegan from Blaine, Minnesota, Reagan from San Diego, Rose from Brooklyn, New York, Jack from Calgary, Finn from Montreal, Jet from Fort Worth, Texas, Kaya from Honolulu, Nico from Las Cruces, New Mexico, Darlene from Oakland, California, Eden from St. Robert, Missouri, Harper from Austin, Texas, Henry from Minneapolis, Avi from Denver, Avery from Santa Rosa, California, Alyssa and Layla from Cheshire, Connecticut, Teddy from Brentwood, California, Harriet, Lyndon, and Stellan from Sydney, Australia, Alexander from Alpharetta, Georgia, Cooper from Claremont, California, Lucy and Jackson from Toronto, and Tristan from Eau Claire, Wisconsin. You can check out the rest of our series on the science of cooking at our website, brainson.org, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have questions, ideas, mystery sounds, and high fives to share, head over to brainson.org slash contact. And next week, the aliens are coming. What's for dinner? <laughs>